Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. The scripture for today's teaching is Mark 14, verses 53 to 72. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is the word of God to us. All right. Hey, good morning. You guys can grab a seat. Uh, if we've not had the chance to meet, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors. And I want to just assure you, our building is not falling over. Uh, you might hear some loud noises, and uh, we have no idea what that is, but we know it happens when it's windy. And luckily, it's never windy in Oklahoma. So that, yeah, so at any point that you hear some bizarre noises, that's what it is. I, I don't think we have a demon on our roof, but we may. I don't know. Um, hey, it's so good to be with you today. I, uh, I want to just say to those of you that are here and you're trying to process where you are with Jesus and with Christianity, we're glad that you're here. It's, a, it's kind of a brave thing to come to church 
uh, especially in a place like Oklahoma where a lot of us carry some church hurt, some baggage from our association with the church. And I just want to say thanks for being with us. And uh, we don't claim to have all the answers. We don't claim to know everything, but we'd love to wrestle with you as you process. We'd love to help you answer questions, do our best to open up the Bible together and, uh, and just try to figure out what it is that Jesus may be doing in you. So thanks for being with us here today. Uh, I am so glad to be back with you. My wife and I were out of town last week celebrating our 14-year anniversary. And uh, yeah, thank you. She, all the applause is for her putting up with me for 14 years. And uh, we, had a, we had a great time away, but it's good to be back with you guys. So if you have your Bibles, Mark 14 is where we're going to be. And I want to pray for us, and then we're going to get after it. Jesus, thank you today for the gift to sit under the word and to be shaped by the word. And I just confess today, I need that. I need to be shaped by the word. There's stories today that we're reading that remind me of me and my failures and remind me of the ways that I've created distance between me and you at times and the ways that I fear association with you at times. And I pray today that you would move and work in my heart and move and work in the hearts of my friends. I pray today would be helpful for people who are wrestling with Christianity, but especially I pray for the followers of Jesus in the room that today you would show us your faithfulness in light of our failure and show us your love even in the midst of our failure. Pray today that you would swallow up shame where we carry shame. In Jesus' name, amen. I got into my first fist fight when I was 14. And I say it like I, you know, get into fist fights like a normal, regular occasion all the time. It's actually my only fight that I've ever been in. I was 14 years old, and I was with my brother and our neighbor. And our neighbor was a boy that was a little bit older than us. He was a little bit bigger than us. And he was a little bit of a bully, to be sure. And my little brother, I'm one of 10 kids, so this is the brother closest to me in age. My little brother, uh, closest to me in age, were hanging out. And I, he was a little bit of a hothead as well at the time, to be honest. And I don't really, to this day, know exactly what happened. But him and the neighbor kid got into it over a skateboard. And the next thing I know, this neighbor is on top of my brother, pinned, had my brother pinned down, and is just punching him in the face, just waylaying on my brother. And I'm standing there kind of watching this whole thing happen. Now, a little known fact about me is that I was in karate for most of my life growing up. And if you're like, oh, that's cool. It's not really cool. If you're a skinny kid, you do karate because that's like, I've got to survive somehow. And so this was my tactic of survival growing up as a skinny kid. And seeing this happen with my brother, instincts kicked in. And I can't even really explain what happened to you. All I know is I grab the kid by the shoulder, I turn him around, and I punch him as hard as I can in the face. I broke two of my knuckles. I broke his face. True story. Blood everywhere. He's like laying on the ground and then runs home screaming. And I was like, yes, I just did that. You know, 14, all my training has come into play for this moment, you know. And, uh, and, and, my, and in my brother's hour of need, I was there. And I stood up and I fought for him. Now, here's what's interesting about that. If you had like video footage of my brother and I's relationship for most of our life, any other moment than that, it was actually me that was the one beating up on him, right? You would see me doing things to him that would really question my love and my devotion to him whatsoever. And it wasn't that I didn't love my brother, I did, but it was, it was almost like the like, no one punches my brother in the face but me type of mentality that I had. And so here's what I'm trying to say. There's a type of courage and love that it takes to fight for your brother, But there's a deeper type of courage and love that it takes to daily sacrifice yourself for your brother. And I lacked that deeper 
type of courage and love for my brother. I loved him in one way, but in the deeper day-to-day realities of life, there's a lot of ways that I treated him really, really poorly and didn't love him very well, and yet I was willing to fight for him. Now, here's why I say that story. It's because you see a similar dynamic at play in Peter's soul in chapter 14. In Peter's soul, there's something happening where there's a tension between a type of courage that it takes to fight for Jesus and a type of courage that it actually takes to suffer for Jesus. And those types of courage and love and devotion are very, very different. One is actually quite a bit easier to have. Now, here's where we are in the story of Mark. If you remember, uh, there's kind of themes that are being developed in Mark. And Mark is a brilliant author. He's a brilliant writer sharing these stories, these real stories, but putting them together in a way that's super helpful and profound. And what he's doing is actually weaving together two themes that merge together in chapter 14. The first theme is Jesus and his uh, language about the temple and the religious leaders and him bringing judgment on the temple. If you've been with us, every, ever since chapter 11 of Mark, Jesus has been speaking very negatively about the temple and the religious leaders. And the religious leaders have had enough. By this point, they are beyond uh, ready to arrest Jesus, so much so that now they're ready to see him executed. So that's what's happening with the, this story. But parallel to that, another story is happening, and it's the story of Peter. There's actually a character arc, a development of his story, and both Peter and his development as a character, and then Jesus and his destruction of the temple language and all of his opposition to the religious leaders, these two stories are coming together in chapter 14 in a really profound way. It's fascinating because up to this point, Peter seems nothing but courageous, doesn't he? He seems nothing but fearless. In fact, Jesus had already prophesied and said, hey, you guys are all going to abandon me by tonight. Like, the, everybody's going to leave me and I'm going to be all alone. And Peter, he's like very much disagrees with that statement. Here's what he says to Jesus in chapter 14, verse 29. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I can imagine him pointing to the other disciples, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, This very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. So Peter's like, no way. And Jesus is like, yeah, tonight. You're going to deny me three times before the morning even shows up. Peter, again, disagrees with this assessment. And we saw in the story last week, you know what happened? Jesus was in the garden, and Judas and the religious leaders and these guards showed up, and they arrested Jesus. And what we we didn't see in Mark, but we find out later in John's gospel account, is that Peter actually pulls out a sword, and like a crazy person, he starts swinging the sword around and actually cuts off a guy's ear, which Jesus then has to like put back on and, you know, divinely heal on the spot, which is like a hilarious addition to that story. He's like, oh, my ear. Okay, everything's fine. And, and, and here's, here's my point in saying that. You watch Peter unfold in the story, and you're like, man, he's brave. He's courageous. He is willing to fight for Jesus and to swing a sword for Jesus. But friends, what if Jesus is not the type of master that you and I are called to necessarily fight for, but more the master and the Messiah that you and I are called to suffer and die for? There's a type of courage it takes to fight, but there's a deeper type of courage that it takes to suffer And this is where Peter is going to fail. Now, with that in mind, here's what I want you to see as we set up the story. There's actually not one, but two trials here with two very different outcomes. I've said it already, but 
uh, Mark has two authors. The, the first human author is John Mark, and he's absolutely brilliant. He's putting this together in a very helpful, brilliant way and very much with an intentionality. And yet there's also the Holy Spirit that is beyond and above John Mark as he's authoring this letter, so, or the, this gospel account, so that it's actually coming to us as authoritative word from God. But here's what's fascinating about what John, is doing, John Mark is doing in these two stories. They feel separate. Jesus on trial, and then Peter standing by a fire with a little girl. They feel very disconnected, but actually these two stories are sandwiched together and meant to be read in light of one another. That when you read about the trial of Jesus, that you're actually seeing a type of courageous discipleship on display. And then when you read about Peter, who is also on a different type of a trial, you see actually a cowardice type of discipleship at play. So this is really a story about failure and the shadow of success. And so with that in mind, this idea of two different trials with two different outcomes, let's work our way through the story verse by verse. Start in verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and all the elders and the scribes came together. This is what's known as the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And Peter, notice this, had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. So let me set up the scene here for you so that you can understand kind of what's happening. Immediately, we notice some things that are horribly, horribly off about this story. Notice where Peter is. Peter, just a few minutes ago, had told Jesus that, hey, even if all of these jokers betray you and abandon you, I won't. I'm prepared to die. I'm prepared to fight. And yet here, Peter is, according to John Mark, following Jesus at a distance. That's not a throwaway line. That's describing something that's happening in his soul and this gap that's getting entered into the story where instead of Peter being right with Jesus on trial saying, let's do this together, I've got your back, I'm here for you, he's now following Jesus, but he's doing so at a distance. In addition to that, he's not only not standing with Jesus on trial, but he's actually standing next to the guards, the very people that had arrested Jesus just a few moments before. He's standing next to those guards. And the story says that he's warming himself by the fire. So what you see happening here is Peter is totally self-absorbed at this point. He's not prepared to die. He's not prepared to suffer. He's actually following Jesus at a distance and concerned with his own physical well-being, warming himself by a fire. James Edwards says this, Peter has forsaken a discipleship of costly following for one of safe observation. That's the first thing that's off about the story is we're noticing a gap in Peter's discipleship. He's no longer with Jesus. He's following at a distance. In addition to that, the trial, or what is called a trial in the story, is an absolute train wreck. 
what's happening here is breaking all kinds of rules. By this point in Jewish life and history, there were two working documents that the religious leaders would use to make decisions in any situation, but especially in situations that are involved with trials or capital offenses where they're seeking the death penalty. They had the Torah, which had 613 laws, and then by this time in history, they had something called the Mishnah, which had around 1,500 laws, a little over 1,500 laws. And the Mishnah had detailed out laws for how to go about a capital trial. If you're seeking the death penalty and you're having a trial for the death penalty, there are certain rules and laws that these religious leaders would have been experts in and accountable to do, and yet they're doing virtually none of them. Here are some of them that they would have known and they were bound by. No trials could occur at night or on the eve of a Sabbath or a festival. Trials were to be held at a specific location, a place called the Hall of Hewn Stones, which was in the temple complex. So imagine like a courtroom that was in the temple complex. You were not allowed to hold trials anywhere you wanted. They had to be there. In cases of capital punishment, which is what this trial is, reasons for acquittal and potential innocence had to be given first before you gave any reasons for conviction. In other words, you couldn't start with, here are 12 reasons why we think this person should die. You had to start with, here's why we think this person is innocent. Here's why this person potentially didn't do the crime that we're saying that they did. And then you could go into other issues of potential guilt. If the person was found guilty, even after all of that, a separate gathering had to be held 24 hours later. You had to wait a whole day. So that way, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, who were responsible for executing justice, could come to their senses, could weigh the matter overnight, and hopefully lean a little bit more towards mercy as opposed to towards death. Witnesses were to be warned against rumors and hearsay, and charges of blasphemy couldn't be sustained unless the person accused actually cursed God's name itself in front of everybody, and then they would be killed by stoning on the spot. So you can't just say that someone's blasphemous. They actually have to curse God's name on the spot, and that then counts as blasphemy. Now, friends, if you noticed as we read the story, virtually all of those things are getting broken in this quote-unquote trial. It's taking place at night. It's taking place on the eve of a, of a Sabbath. Remember, Jewish uh, folks celebrate Sabbath Friday night to Saturday night. It's Friday night. So on the eve of, of a Sabbath, on Passover weekend, at the, the high priest's house, Caiaphas. So it's not even at the Hall of Hewn Stones where you hold trials. It's in like Caiaphas's backyard, which is a sketchy place to hold a trial. And they've already decided the outcome. They're rigging the outcome and trying to find people that are going to testify against Jesus and make false accusation. They're virtually doing none of the things that the Mishnah called for them to do. Notice what happens next in verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst, as all these accusations are being made against Jesus, the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? Now, you know he's not really asking. He wants Jesus to be guilty. But look at what Jesus is doing in response, verse 61. But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? 
Now, this is a big question, friends. This question has not been asked of Jesus ever. This is the big reveal right here. And what's fascinating about what the high priest is saying is it's actually in Greek a statement, not a question. It's a statement, but said like a question. And here's how it reads in Greek. You are the Christ, the son of the blessed one. And so the irony here is here's the high priest who is speaking truth about Jesus. It's the same Greek line that Peter used in chapter 8 when he testified that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the blessed one. Same exact line. And yet here the high priest is saying the statement, but saying it as a question. And no one, Jesus has not revealed this publicly to, to this many people yet. And notice what Jesus is going to say in response. Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So finally in this gospel account, Jesus does the big reveal, the curtain drops. And for the first time, everybody's brought in on the story of who he really is. He says, I am the Christ. Now, let let me just pause here and remind you, it wasn't wrong to claim to be the Christ. That wasn't blasphemous to do. Uh, The Christ in uh, Jewish thought was another term for like king, or the Romans would call it a Caesar, or for them, they called it the Messiah. So to say that you're the Christ wasn't to say that you were the son of God, as we often envision that. To say that you're the Christ was to claim to be the rightful king over Israel, David's descended son, where the, the throne was rightfully belonging to you. And many people before Jesus claimed to be the Christ, and many people after Jesus claimed to be the Christ. So to say that you are the Christ is not inherently blasphemous. And even the statement, this idea of, are you the son of the blessed one? This is a direct reference to Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7. Let me read 2 Samuel 7 to you. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That was God talking about David's son, his descendant, that one day there was going to be a son of a son of a son of a son of David who would be the rightful king over Israel. And here for the first time, Jesus drops the curtain and he says, yeah, that's me. I'm the Christ. I'm the son of the blessed one. And he reveals his identity. N.T. Wright says this, at last the masks are off, the secrets are out, The cryptic sayings and parables are left behind and the son of man stands before the official ruler of Israel declaring that God will prove him in the right and the court in the wrong. This is what the high priest does in response. He absolutely cannot take this any longer. Verse 63, and the high priest tore his garments, which is like an ancient way of having like a Facebook outrage session. You know, it's like rah, tearing your garments. That's, that's what he's doing. It's kind of an impractical way to express your outrage, but that's fine. The high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Now, there's a lot happening here, but just two things that I want you to briefly see about Jesus and his response. The first is that Jesus is embodying the the perfect example of what Isaiah is going to describe as the suffering servant. In Isaiah, you have these different passages that describe the suffering servant that one day would come, and Jesus is embodying this perfectly. Isaiah 50 says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. 
I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Isaiah 53 goes on. It says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet, notice, he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Friends, don't let it escape you that this is happening on Passover weekend. Here is the sacrificial lamb that is standing before the high priest. And in the Old Testament, the sacrificial lamb would stand before the high priest and the sins of the people would be put on the lamb and then that lamb would be slaughtered. Jesus is symbolically entering into that sacrificial lamb already as the suffering servant. And even though they're wrongfully convicting and accusing him of things he didn't do, he remained silent, just like Isaiah said would happen. But there's something else that's taking place here that I want you to see. Not only is Jesus embodying the faithful suffering servant of Isaiah, but he's actually modeling for you and I a type of true faithfulness and discipleship in the face of suffering that you and I are called upon to embody as well. Timothy Gamba says it this way. Jesus had previously told his disciples what they should do when arrested and put on trial. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you that is speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Notice, in this episode, Jesus behaves in a way that is consistent with his exhortation. His behavior is cross-shaped. He does not argue, fight, retaliate, or try to escape. He simply opens his mouth and speaks his identity plainly. Now, here's what's interesting about the story. You would expect it to be over here. Here, Jesus is modeling the perfect disciple for us. Here he is modeling how to suffer in the face of persecution and how to to stand firm in who you really are and your identity, even when the threat of death is hanging over your head. Jesus kind of is doing this as, as a model of the perfect disciple, and you kind of think the story should be done here, and yet the story immediately pans over to Peter, and here's what I want you to see, is that there's not just one trial at play here, there's actually two trials. Jesus is on trial before the religious leaders, and Peter, in a very different way, is sort of on a different type of a trial, but this time with a young girl. And where Jesus was faithful, notice what Peter is going to do in response. Look at verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene. You also were with the Nazarene Jesus, sorry. Now, friends, notice in this passage here, she's not threatening Peter. She's not saying, and if you say you were, we're going to have you arrested and killed. She's a little girl. She's just making an observation like kids do. Hey, I think you were with Jesus. I think you're with that Nazarene that is causing all this commotion. And yet notice Peter's response, verse 68. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again saying to the bystanders, this man is one of them. Don't you love little kids? They're like, I'm not gonna let this go. I think I did see you with him. Like, surely you're one of the guys, you know. And again, she's not threatening to arrest him. She can't hurt Peter. She's a little girl. She's just making an observation. But again, look at his response. He denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of him, for you are a Galilean. Apparently Peter had been talking and his Galilean accent gave him away. And so they're saying like, we're not, like, you're, you're one of them, right? I mean, it's not that big of a deal. We think you're one of them. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, 
I do not know this man with whom you speak of. He can't even say the name of Jesus. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. Now this is a familiar story, especially if you grew up in church, right? Even if you didn't grow up in church, this is one of those stories that's kind of embedded into our cultural memory. Most of us know at least somewhat about this story. But I was struck by the depths and the layers of the story, stuff I'd never seen before as I was studying this passage a few weeks ago. This entire story is packed with intentional, sad irony and comparison. Like, let me just give you the first level of the irony that John Mark is weaving into the story. There's a comparison, an intentional comparison between Jesus and the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders. In this story, Jesus is brought before the high priest, and yet he himself is the true high priest. In this story, Jesus is accused of breaking the law, and yet, ironically, he's the only one who has been keeping the law perfectly, and in fact, came to fulfill the law. Jesus is judged and found guilty by the religious leaders, and yet he is both completely innocent and the true and ultimate judge over all of them. Jesus is sadly mocked as a false prophet. They blindfold him, they beat him, they demand him to prophesy, saying, you're a false prophet. And yet, sadly and ironically, his prophecy about Peter's denial is being fulfilled just a few feet away from him as he's getting struck in the face. And in fact, even them hitting him in the face and spitting in, in his face and doing the things that they're doing is a direct fulfillment of what Jesus said would happen earlier in Mark chapter 8 and in Mark chapter 10. So that's the first layer that John Mark is weaving together this comparison. But then there's a different layer. There's like even a deeper layer here that he wants, to, wants us to see between Jesus' trial and Peter's trial. Jesus is standing on trial before the most powerful religious leader of his day, the high priest, and yet he boldly seals his fate just by being honest. And yet Peter crum- crumbles under the simple question of a young girl, and becomes dishonest. In Jesus' trial, he's asked about things that he never said while facing the threat of death, but in Peter's trial, he's asked about the truth, and yet he is never under any threat whatsoever. In Jesus' trial, he faithfully answers the high priest about his true identity, but in Peter's trial, he lies about even knowing Jesus, doesn't even say his name, thereby denying his own identity as a disciple of Jesus. In Jesus' trial, he's wrongly accused of blasphemy. Sadly, Peter, in his trial, he is blaspheming and calling down curses from heaven upon himself. And sadly, the most ironic thing that's stated is in verse 71. It's maybe the saddest verse in this entire chapter where Peter utters these words, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And friends, in a real way, Peter's right. He actually, in this moment, doesn't know this man. Can you, imagine, can you imagine swearing to God that you don't know God? That's what Peter is doing. And here's what's sad about it is it's kind of true. Because Peter knew the Messiah in his mind. He knew the Messiah that was coming in, riding on a powerful war horse to go to war with Rome and to restore Israel to its rightful place. But he didn't know this Messiah as a suffering servant. He knew the Messiah that was going to dominate his enemies, but he didn't know the Messiah that was going to a cross so that Peter could be set free from Satan's sin and death. So in this sense, 
he's actually right. Peter doesn't know this man, at least not the man that he thought is not this Jesus. And when Peter hears the rooster crow the final time, he remembers what Jesus had told him just a few moments before, earlier that night, and he breaks down and he weeps. Friends, this is a story of failure and the shadow of faithfulness. You have Jesus who faithfully suffers and is honest about his identity. And then you have Peter who is on trial by this little girl and crumbles and is denying his own identity, even knowing Jesus whatsoever. Why is this story in the Bible? That's maybe the question that I want to just end with. Why is the story in the Bible? Uh, if you remember, and this is a huge important point to, to keep in mind, that the unbroken testimony of church history tells us that John Mark didn't just write this out, out of a firsthand account, but actually Peter, the apostle Peter, sat down with John Mark and retold this entire story from his eyewitness perspective, and John Mark was the one who recorded Peter's story. So every time you read anything in Mark, you're actually reading it from the firsthand perspective of Peter. That's how we know what happened here is because Peter was the eyewitness of all these events as they unfolded. And here's what's bizarre. Peter said, hey, hey, John Mark, there's one other detail I need you to include in this story. It's the story of my most shameful moment. It's the story where I denied even knowing Jesus. Why would Peter do that? Like, Peter's not a nobody at this point in church history. Uh, while he's giving John Mark these details, Peter is the most important Christian alive. He's literally like the leader of the early church. Everybody knows the Apostle Peter. He has a reputation. And yet here he says, there's another element of my story that I want to actually have told. It's my most shameful moment. It's my most embarrassing moment. It's my moment of failure. And I think it's important that it lands in the story. Why? Well, here's why. Because as we read the story, we're not meant just to look down on Peter. We're meant to look introspectively at ourselves because Peter reminds us of us. Peter's denial, Peter's betrayal, Peter's cowardice reminds us of deeper things that are at play in you and I. And if I think that Peter could sit down with us over coffee, he would give us probably several things. But let me just give you three things that I think Peter would want to tell you and I as to why this story landed in Scripture. Here's the first one, very briefly. There is an actual cost to discipleship. There really is. Growing up, I used to read uh, stories of martyrs. I actually came to faith by hearing a story of a sort of modern-day martyr. If you remember the story of Cassie Bernal and the Columbine High School shooting, uh, the shooters put a gun to her head and said, do you believe in God? And she said yes, and they pulled the trigger and killed her. And I was actually living a double life at the time when I heard that story. I was pretending to be a Christian at church, but was totally just pretending and living for myself. And when I heard that story, I was brought under such conviction that here's this girl who actually gave her life for Jesus. Would I be willing to do that? No, because I'm not even living for Jesus. I was so convicted. That's what the Spirit of God used to make my dead heart come alive to God. I became a Christian. I became kind of enamored with these stories of martyrs. And and I kind of thought as a little kid, like, if ever I was put in a situation like that, would I have the boldness? Would I have the courage to die for Jesus? And I want to believe that I would. But friends, there's many, many times that are way less terrifying, way less demanding, where I have betrayed knowing Jesus. There are times in my life where I have put distance between him and me, where I've been ashamed to be associated with him. And so while I want to believe that I would die for him, just like Peter said he would, 
in those little moments, I crumble. Can you relate to that at all? I think Peter would want to sit down with us and he would want to say, hey, there is a real cost to being a disciple of Jesus. And sometimes it's not the cost that you think. It's not maybe the cost of even losing your life. Although for most Christians in history, it's been suffering physical persecution and at times death. Even most Christians in our world today, it's suffering physical persecution and and at times even death. But for us in the West, friends, can we just be honest? It's cultural shame. And we are not prepared for cultural shame, are we? We are so used to being on the right side of history. We are so used to be being seen as loving and kind and respectful. And the thought that somebody might look at us and have an abrupt ending to an otherwise normal conversation because they find out you're a Christian or eye roll or say that you're a bigot or say that you're restrictive or to say that you're on the wrong side of history or small-minded or unloving because of the things that you believe about the way of Jesus. Friends, we are not prepared to even suffer a little bit the cultural shame that is at play in our moment today. And I think Peter would sit down with us and he would say, hey, it's not just the big times when you feel like you're brave enough to pull out a sword and fight for Jesus. It's, the little t- it's when a 12-year-old girl asks you if you know the man. Do you know the man? Be prepared for the actual cost of discipleship. Second thing I think Peter would urge us to do is to learn to implicate ourselves for Jesus. I think he would want us to implicate ourselves for Jesus. And this is something that we struggle with. Have you noticed that there are times where it's really easy to be associated with Jesus, to be associated with being a Christian? I remember I got invited to speak at a conference and I was like, man, this is amazing. I don't ever get invited to speak at big conferences. And one of the guys that was there was Matt Chandler. And there was a poster of Matt Chandler in my face. And I'm like, look at that. I'm on a poster with Matt Chandler. Some of you don't even know who Matt Chandler is. And who cares? This shows you how dark my heart is. I shouldn't have cared either. But here I was like, and I remember walking around and people were like, hey, are you, are you Pastor Andrew? And like people that I don't know know my name. And that gave me a sense of significance and meaning and importance. How dark is that? And yet, like two weeks later, interacting with someone who's not a follower of Jesus, and they ask me about my sex ethic as a Christian, and I feel myself clam up, and I feel myself like, man, how do I respond? What do I say? There are times where it's really fun to be associated with Jesus, and there are times where it's really, really painful and hard. And friends, I think Peter would look at us, and he would say, you need to learn to implicate yourself for Jesus. You need to learn to be associated with the man. Friends, I get it. There are times where I'm embarrassed to say that I'm a Christian or to say that I'm a pastor because there's some really bad pastors out there and there's some really bad Christians out there. There are times where we have to acknowledge that evangelical Christianity has failed a lot, has some repenting to do, has some acknowledging of brokenness, has done some things that are just really distorted and wrong. All that's true. But friends, Jesus himself needs no apology and he needs no explanation. Jesus himself has no reason to be embarrassed about anything. And you and I are not called to tout our own name. We carry the name of Christ. And where my name has failed, his name is spotless and pure, and we have no reason to be embarrassed of our Savior. No reason whatsoever. The lie that we often believe that I see playing out right now with a lot of well-meaning Christians is that if we can just be nice enough if we can just be loving enough, if we can just be nuanced and winsome enough with how we answer questions, if we can just be culturally savvy enough, then maybe, just maybe, 
if we present it good enough, we can lessen the offense and people will like us in the end. Friends, that's simply not true. They didn't even like Jesus. And friends, I'm not saying that we should be jerks. It's good to not be a jerk. You shouldn't be a jerk. It's good to be kind. It's good to be winsome. It's good to be nuanced. It's good to be savvy culturally. It's good to have good answers to hard questions. All that's right and all that's good. But even if you do all of that 100% perfectly, you can't lessen the association of being with Jesus. It's still offensive. It's still offensive. And I think Peter's saying, are you ready for that? We're in a moment where maybe what we need to do is not dial up the, the, the dial of being culturally nuanced with everything. Maybe what we need to do is dial up with love, in kindness, with grace, the dial of clarity and be found to be with Jesus. And that's okay. And it's at this point where I can sense my own failures acutely. Moments of silence when I should have verbally confessed. Moments of sitting still when I should have moved into loving action for Jesus' sake. Moments of shying away when I should have spoken up. Moments of putting distance between me and Jesus. Can you relate to any of that? If at all you feel your failure here, if at all you feel those moments where you want to die for Jesus, but you struggle even talking about Jesus with your neighbors. If you feel that failure, if you feel that sting of those miniature denials that you and I are doing, the, the, the slight embarrassment of being associated with Jesus, I think there's one more thing that P- Peter would want to tell us, and this is probably the most important thing that he'd want us to remember, that your father still deeply loves you. That yes, we've failed, that's true. Yes, Peter failed, that's absolutely true. But greater than our failures is the undying, relentless love of our father who comes to us in our shame and swallows all of it with his love and mercy. That even when I fail him, he doesn't fail to love me. Even when I'm embarrassed of him, he's never been embarrassed to be associated with us. That's what he did on the cross in fullness. Here's what's so crazy about Peter's story, and I'll close. What's so crazy about his story is that this is not the last moment that we see Peter. And this isn't his truest failure. That actually what happens next is that Jesus dies and he rises again from the dead, but Peter doesn't know it. Peter goes back to fishing, which is kind of a way of saying, yeah, I think I've just disqualified myself as a disciple. He literally goes back to his old way of life. And what's one of the first things that Jesus does when he rises from the dead? He goes to find Peter. And what I love about it is he knows where to find him. (laughs) He finds him right where he first found him on the Sea of Galilee and called him to be his disciple. Now he's going to do it again. But this time Peter's head is held low with shame. And when Peter sees Jesus on the beach, he, he basically gets down to what my grandma would call your skivvies and jumps in the water and swims like a madman to Jesus. And I don't think it's because Jesus was frowning. I think Jesus was laughing and smiling to see Peter. And here Peter runs, he swims to see Jesus. And what happens next in the story is absolutely profound. Jesus basically reinstates Peter as a disciple. He says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times. And those denials that Peter had made get recovered and repaired and overlooked and redeemed by the love of Jesus. And here Peter gets reinstated as a disciple. And here's what's so crazy, guys. A few years after that, in 64 AD, the apostle Peter is led out of his prison cell He's stretched over a cross and he's hung upside down at his own request 
saying, I am not worthy to die in the same manner as my Lord Jesus. This man who denied Jesus a few years later is boldly physically dying for Jesus. The Father loves you, and he loves you even when you fail him. And your failures, your greatest shame, is not something that can't be forgiven or swallowed up. And even more than that, it's what he wants to use as a part of your story, as a part of the story of redemption, so that people who are far from God can be brought back to him. So friends, if you're like me, it's like, yeah, I can believe that God would do that for Peter. I don't know that he could do that for me. And I want to say to your heart and to my heart, his love is big enough, not just to forgive, but to redeem and to swallow shame and to bring you back as a real disciple who can one day actually die for Jesus.